So normally we, uh, we fill the tank up on Friday and we let the heater run all day Saturday so it's nice and warm, but when we came in this morning, there was a bit of a technical difficulty and the tank was empty. And I'm not going to say who made the mistake or anything. I wouldn't do that to the new guy. Chris doesn't need that grief right now. He's just getting going. No, no, I actually don't know if it was him. It could, it could have been anybody. Who knows? So it, just, it drained. And, but anyway, so it fills with cold water. So we're like lugging cauldrons of hot water up to try and get it somewhat warm. And by about the fourth or fifth cauldron of hot water, I'm thinking, you know, Presbyterian or Anglican is looking better all the time. I basically just need a glass of water to do this. But, uh, no, we do baptize by immersion because we're Baptists. That's what we do. And uh, what I wanted to do today and, uh, is to take a look into uh, baptism and what it means. It seems like an appropriate time. And uh, to sort of stir up those thoughts that even Gord maybe started to open up with about whether we should be baptized and who should be baptized and when should we be baptized. And if you've been holding off on baptism, why is that? And uh, I originally planned for this to be a very uh, quick but deep look into the different scriptures on baptism, uh, but I also told everybody I don't want to rush the baptism this morning, and I don't want to rush the worship time, and I don't want to rush the prayer, and so take as long as you want. And so I realized that I need to be done in 20 minutes. And so this is not going to be a uh, full message. I've, I've devised now that I can divide this into two. And so I'm going to look at the first section, just talking about our Baptist history and where baptism comes from and high and low views of baptism. And then we're going to look at the first section of the message, and then we're going to continue next week to take a longer look. And I'll just open in a word of prayer before I begin. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you just for the, the joy and the celebration of seeing uh, your disciple take this step. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your scripture today and next week, that we would all, regardless of the traditions we come from, set those aside and look at your word and see what your word says. And Father, that we would understand what baptism means, that it has accomplishing things in our lives, and that if we haven't been baptized uh, it's something for us to look seriously at. And if it's looking forward to it in our future, how we prepare for it. And so, Father, I just pray that you would open up your word to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so when I say that I want to take a deeper look into baptism, I honestly don't mean any pun there. It's just to look beyond our Baptist tradition or the idea that baptism we often say is just a symbol or it's just a sign or it's just a representation of something that has already taken place. And it's kind of ironic because even as a Baptist church, and we have our roots in centuries of Baptist tradition uh, who baptize and only admit into membership if you've been baptized fully by immersion and believe in you know, uh, believer's baptism and not infant baptism and all, all of those things, it's still actually in a way common for Baptists not saying all Baptists, but some Baptists, to have a low view of baptism. And when I say a low view of baptism, I don't mean they don't think it's important, but they're just not sure that it instills any sort of effectual grace. It's a symbol, it's a sign, it's an enactment of something, but God isn't necessarily doing anything in it because we can't have a work be part of our salvation. And this is part of our whole Reformed tradition that we talked about back in October when we had some sermons on the Reformation. 
There was such an antithesis to the idea of works justification from the Catholic Church that all of the Reformed churches sort of went the other extreme and said there is no work that we can do, there is no action that we take that has any merit or grace or God accomplishes in those actions. And so, ironically, even Baptist churches can have what I would call a low view of baptism in the sense that people would say that it doesn't do anything. It doesn't save you, and in fact, we're not sure what grace it might impart. There's just this natural fear of viewing anything that seems like a work as being spiritually effectual in our redemption. And so, it's only a sign, it's only a symbol, it doesn't save, which can too often mean if, when the person is saying it, we don't really think God is imparting any real meaningful grace, or God is really accomplishing something profoundly spiritual in your baptism. It's a great step of obedience for you, it's a great testimony, it's a great sign, but we cannot buy into the idea that something is taking place, which I think would be a mistake. And so like everything in Scripture and in our knowledge of God, we don't want to say that baptism does too much, that it's accomplishing something that it's not, And we also want to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that baptism does too little. right? We look to Scripture so that we can see exactly what baptism is meant for us by God. We have to be careful not to have so low a view of baptism that it's nothing more than a step of obedience, that it's somehow just a hoop that God wants us to jump through, hopefully, depending on your tradition. And God's happy when we jump through it, but doesn't really matter whether we do or not. doesn't really value or provide any value to us spiritually. We don't want to have that low of a view, and we don't want to have too high of a view that it's accomplishing something or we put an assurance in something that does not give us assurance or shouldn't. But we just want to think that God didn't have to give us baptism, and yet it was important enough for him to command. And so are we certain we're approaching and appropriating all that God intends baptism to mean and and what He intends God intends it to accomplish for us? How does our baptism speak to a deeper reality that's taking place through it? Is baptism sort of a one-and-done event, that it just happens and then you kind of forget about it? Or can we continue to live in our baptism today, those of us that are baptized? Just as we live out our reliance on the cross every day, even though the cross was 2,000 years ago. So in other words, how should we understand what God is doing in baptism, and how is our baptism meant to stay with us even after the event has taken place? And so first of all, I think it's important to establish that baptism is pretty important to God and that we should match him in his significance to us. And so this is the first section that I want to talk about before we talk more about it next week. And the first text that we're going to look at is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I don't have PowerPoint this morning, kind of on purpose because I thought this might happen, that I might have to sort of adjust the schedule a little bit. But in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the first thing that we want to see is the centrality of baptism in terms of God's importance that he places on it, and also how it is linked to discipleship and what it's meant to be in terms of being an initiation into discipleship. If you look at baptism in the New Testament, you see that baptism has a role and is applied in a way that's very different from how we do it today, even different from how we did it today. In the New Covenant, baptism was central and closely tied to the experience of receiving Christ and our initiation into discipleship, and not necessarily a step of obedience that came months or years after becoming a disciple. Not to say that what we're doing today is wrong, but simply that we want to look at Scripture and see what God has done with baptism. 
Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We all know these verses, right? This is the Great Commission. This is what God is telling us to do. Go make disciples, baptizing them. And there's obviously been a lot of... Um, interpretive study of this text in terms of the original Greek and what it actually means and, and how you should parse out these verbs and how they work. And the reality here is, is that we have a present participle that implies simultaneous action. In other words, the verse would read, as many have heard, is, as you go, make disciples baptizing. So it's not necessarily go like in a missional sense, you have to leave your home and go. But it is as you go through life, as you go in your way, be making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father. And that verb, when it's constructed in that way, baptizing and teaching are intrinsic to how disciples are made, not something they're done after they become disciples. Okay, so that's kind of complicated. It has to do with Greek text and all that stuff. But the reality is it's like this. Go and hit home runs by strike, swinging the bat and striking the ball. So swing the bat and strike the ball is how you hit home runs. They're not separate. You understand what I'm saying? So the verbs are all the same. Go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching is how disciples are made, just like swinging a bat and hitting a ball is how home runs are generated. And that's how this text should read if we understand it. And so what we see here is baptism is not only a witness to a previous Christian experience, but that baptism, in fact, is an initiation immediately into present Christian experience. So if we were to take through a trip through the book of Acts that documents the rise of the early church, we would find example after example of baptism coming immediately on the heels of accepting the gospel message and as a beginning to that person's discipleship. Right In Acts 2.38, Peter's first great message to the church, he says, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 repented and were baptized that day in Jerusalem. In Acts 8, the response of the people who believed in the gospel was baptism immediately. It wasn't a prayer. It wasn't some other indication of faith. They didn't walk the aisle. They didn't come forward. They didn't raise their hand with every eye closed and every head bowed. The response to repentance was baptism. And it's interesting in Acts 8 that Philip had no anxiety about baptizing people quickly even though one of those people we discover was Simon the sorcerer, who proved later to not be a true believer. But if you were in the situation where you were hearing the gospel and you were repenting and you were responding, baptism was the appropriate response. And so God has made baptism central to the initiation of Christian experience. God has made baptism something that is core to how we become initiated or how we enter into discipleship in Scripture. In Acts 10, you have Cornelius and his household. In Acts 22, it says, And now, why do you wait, rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? And so here, baptism is closely linked to the repentance and the cleansing, which we're going to get into next week, because I'm going to talk about the things that God is picturing and doing in baptism. And then if you leave the book of Acts, which is looking at the Acts of the early church, and you look at Paul as he explains doctrine to the churches in his letters, you look in Ephesians 5, and you look in Corinthians, and Paul is speaking to the cleansing that takes place and that we should experience. So we could say baptism is an integral part of conversion. Commitment to baptism 
you could say it this way, is the normal way to actively accept the gospel. And the Apostle Paul later writes in Ephesians 4, 4-6, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, and that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so we hear, you see here, I hope you're seeing what I see in these scriptures, is that baptism is not a secondary thing. There's a reason that it's an ordinance or a sacrament in the Baptist church along with communion. It's been ordained, it's been commanded by God, and not just commanded and ordained by God, but scripturally and theologically it has been linked doctrinally together with faith. They're not separable. In this Ephesians 4 text, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, these verses seem to indicate that all Christians share three common things. They share a common Savior, one Lord, Jesus Christ. That we share a common attitude towards that Savior, which is we all have faith in Him, and we share that same common faith. And we all have a common formal affirmation of that faith, which is baptism. Paul mentions baptism here right alongside faith. And Jesus, and the hope, and the Spirit, and the Father. Baptism's right there in the middle of all of that. So in other words, baptism is a significant part of our identity in Christ, the symbol of our union with Christ and our initiation into discipleship. And it's also a sign of our union with God's people, which again we'll talk about more next week. So the first thing is just this idea of baptism's centrality in being ordained by God and practiced in the church, which indicates it's clearly designed by God to be an important part of our Christ-falling experience. It isn't just a step of obedience, and it isn't merely a testimony. Baptism is accomplishing something that God intends for us to experience, to feel to have take place in us. Something real is taking place in us spiritually in our baptism. The first thing, sorry, the second thing that it would have been, but I'm going to talk about this time. The second thing is that baptism is this initiation into not only discipleship, but into unity with the rest of the body of Christ. So that we are joining in unity with God and we are joining in unity with the rest of the body of Christ. Stan Fowler in his book, Rethinking Baptism, states it this way. He says, Baptism is a meeting place of grace and faith, the sacramental seal of the experience of our union with Christ. In Romans 6, 3, 5, we see this. Paul is saying, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so here, of course, we go to this text because this is the symbolism of immersion baptism, right? This is when you get the sermon on baptism, you get the sermon on the symbolism of going down under the water is dying with Christ and rising up out of the water is the new life that we have in Christ. And absolutely, that is what baptism is meant to symbolize. But Paul is saying here that surely we are united with him. We are united with Christ in this act of baptism. 
that there is something significant going on here spiritually for the one who is baptized. It's more than merely a step of obedience. It's more than merely a testimony. It is at least those things, but it is more than that. Paul unpacks some of God's purpose for baptism in this for us, that baptism mediates or it expresses our union with Christ at the level of conscious, tangible, physical experience. I mean, we are physical people. We are people that experience reality around us. We're existential. And God knows that. And he says, I'm going to give you something that gives you an experience of what I'm doing with you spiritually. And so in other words, I would say we we shouldn't think of our union with Christ as not only something spiritual or mystical. It is, of course, as Christians, when we come to faith, when we are justified by Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross, and we are forgiven of our sins, and we are united with Christ, there is certainly something spiritual and mysterious going on there. But we can't leave it solely to that realm. Our union is a reality of our existence. When we accept God's promise by faith, really, we really are now united to Christ. And we need to know that. And so physical baptism roots the spiritual in the physical. This cleansing, this righteousness, this salvation is meant for you to experience, to know that it's really real for you. And so if you're here this morning and you... Uh, you know, go through this and you, you see what's going on here with uh, Rebecca. If you've been baptized, you, you kind of relive that experience, don't you? You think back to your baptism and you think, I went under those waters and I came out and I remember what God was doing in my life, what he was accomplishing in me, and I can look back on that baptism knowing with assurance that God has accomplished what he said he would accomplish in my life. Not because the baptism gives me assurance, but because of what I experienced in the baptism gives me assurance. It's not the physical act of baptism that gives me assurance of my salvation. It is what was transpiring by grace in that act so that we actually feel existentially the reality of our cleansing and our salvation, of our death to our old life and our resurrection into a new life. And that's why baptism is the normative way in which faith comes into visual expression. We can, we can certainly be saved without baptism. But that isn't the right question. The right question is, how does God intend baptism to function in our discipleship and in our unity with Christ and in our faith? God intends baptism to serve as a defining moment in our conversion, the means by which we say yes to our new identity in Christ and receive the benefits of knowing Jesus. That's how baptism functions. It is the normal way in which God intended us to say yes in faith to him. Now we, as Baptists and as modern evangelicals, we've come up with all kinds of other different ways for us to say yes to Jesus. And we say, pray a prayer. Or we say, you know, come forward to the, to the walk the aisle and come forward and give your life to Christ. Or, you know, everybody bow your head and if you've made that commitment, then raise your hand. Now, walking an aisle or praying a prayer or raising your hand, there is no saving grace in any of those things. God is the one who saves. But there are means to salvation in which we enact that salvation, in which we respond, and God intends baptism to be the normative way in which we respond. Not that praying a prayer and raising a hand or walking an aisle or any of those things are bad things, but they are only saving in the sense that they are the point in time in which you know what God was doing in your life. And baptism 
is the God-ordained way in which he intends that grace to be bestowed upon us, for us to have that assurance of that death and resurrection, for us to have that assurance of the cleansing of the forgiveness of sin. God says, I've given you a way to do this, and it's baptism. It is the initiation into discipleship. It's the initiation into unity with Jesus. And it is also the initiation into unity with God's people. Colossians 2, 11 to 12 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, what's Paul saying here in Colossians? He's saying in the new covenant, Baptism is directly related to the Old Covenant sign of circumcision. Right In the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel, men and households were shown to be members of the covenant people of ethnic Israel by circumcision, which they received at their new birth. When they were born, you were circumcised. But in the New Covenant, in Colossians here, Paul is saying... That you were made, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul says now there's a new sign of a new covenant. Circumcision, old covenant, new sign, new covenant, baptism. And so in the new covenant through Christ, baptism, Paul says, is a sign of belonging to God's people. And it's a new sign. Notably, baptism is for both men and women, not just men. And baptism takes place at birth, at new spiritual birth. When we are born again, we are just as babies are circumcised in ethnic Israel. When we are born again, become new baby Christians in Christ, we are expected to take on the sign of that new covenant, which is baptism at our new birth. And so just as the ethnic people of Israel were circumcised, So people born into God's kingdom spiritually receive the sign of the covenant when they are spiritually born, which is baptism. So this baptism thing that's going on here, what, maybe she didn't realize she was getting into all this. Well, we did the class, don't worry. But when Rebecca does this, when you do this, when you did this, if you're looking forward to this, when you do this, this baptism is more than just a step of obedience. It's more than just a testimony to the people of the decision that you're making. God is working something through your baptism. It's those things and more. It is this unity with Christ. It is this initiation into discipleship. And it is this unity with God's people that you identify with the people of God. And it's more than that, which we're going to get into next week. But to be clear, we're saved by the God who bestows grace. And we're saved and trust in that God and that grace. We don't trust in the means of that grace, whether that means it's baptism or anything else. In other words, we don't trust in our baptism for salvation. We trust in God for our salvation. But we look to our baptism as the God-ordained way in which he intends to instill in us that assurance and that grace and that mercy. Mark 16, 16 says it this way. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so to go back to answer my first question, or the questions that I was raising at the beginning, 
How do we now look at our baptism? How do we make sure as Baptists that we don't take on too low of a view of baptism? Neither too high nor at the same time too low. But we understand baptism for what God intended it to be. God really intended something to happen in our baptism. It's not just a hoop that he wanted us to jump through to show that we were good disciples. God intends to bless you, to instill mercy, to instill grace to you in your baptism. And so when you look back on your baptism, you should, you can be looking back on your baptism daily for assurance and for joy and for praise and for celebration that God has done this thing. And we're going to see so many more examples next week, so come back, that you can just praise God in. But also, if you are not yet baptized, then why wouldn't you be? Because if you have too low a view, you might be sitting there saying, well, I'm a believer and I trusted in God and I, you know, I don't need to be baptized. Thief on the cross didn't get baptized. He was fine. You're right. You don't absolutely have to be baptized. But as Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Let me put that verse to you this way. If you were terminally sick and soon to die and a doctor told you, do these two things and you will be saved, would you think to yourself, well, I'll do one of them. I won't worry about the other. It says, believe and be baptized. The doctor is saying, do these two things and you will surely be saved. And sometimes we have such a low view of baptism, we'll say, well, I'll do the one thing, but you know, the second one's just optional. Really? No, I don't think so. God intends for you to experience his grace and his mercy through baptism. So it is obedience, but it's more than that. There is something really taking place for you experientially and spiritually in baptism that is for your benefit. And again, like I said, I don't have the time this morning, but next week we're going to look at all of those benefits that baptism brings and why God intends. So we don't want to take too high a view of baptism, but we certainly don't want to take too low of a baptism. When we reflect on what took place here today for Rebecca, when we reflect on what has taken place for us, when we think about what our next step in our spiritual journey with God is, we want to have a right understanding of what God intends by our baptism. And I tell you, come back next week, but... At the very least, what you know is that baptism is the way in which God intends for us to say yes to his request for our faith. It is the way in which God intends for us to say yes to his gospel. It is the way in which we are initiated into discipleship. It is the way in which we are united with Christ. It is the way in which we are united with God's people. All of those things are true of baptism, and they are real. They take place as you go under the water and emerge again. These things have taken place for Rebecca today. These things can take place for you as you learn to understand baptism and respond to God in faith. Let's pray. Father God, I just I thank you for your word. I thank you that even as I was doing the homework this week, you just kept unpacking and unpacking and unpacking scripture after scripture after scripture, that baptism is right there at the center of everything, and it's not there by accident. You are doing something in baptism. And so, Lord, I pray for those of us that look back on our baptism that we might even reappropriate it in a new way and understand it from studying your word in a new way so that our baptism can have more meaning and more assurance and more grace for us. And, Lord, that those of us who are maybe been going a long time without ever thinking of being baptized or maybe don't even think it's necessary, that we would just stop and, and reassess that that if we compare ourselves in the mirror of your scripture, is that really what your scripture says? Is that really what you have for us? And that we would understand that you intend, not baptism is just something, you know, some embarrassing thing that we have to do to somehow, you know, pass a test. That's not 
what you intended, Lord. We know that. But that you have ordained things for us for our good and your glory. And so that when we look to baptism in our future, that we would be looking to this as something that is going to instill in us a grace and a mercy and a treasure that goes beyond the mere going under and coming out of water. But that it is rooting our unity with Christ in something that we experience. And so, Father, I pray for those here that maybe haven't experienced baptism yet, that they would seriously consider that in the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.